Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is the Paul Leslie Hour, and on this episode, we're joined by singer-songwriter, storyteller Arlo Guthrie, an American treasure and an icon in the music business. You know that the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by viewers and listeners like you. So if you would, check out www.thepaulleslie.com support and help keep this ship sailing. All right, folks. Arlo Guthrie, Paul Leslie. It's showtime. How you doing, Paul? I'm great. How are you doing? So far, so good. Well, I got a cup of coffee. I got a fabulous wife. You're looking pretty good. So, also, well, I just saw you do an interesting conversation with my old friend, John Sebastian. Ah, uh, yeah. John Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah, he was a, that was my second time talking to him. He's a, a real interesting guy, as you know. I haven't talked to him for years, but uh, I just thought I'd mention it. I was checking, checking in on your, you know, basically what you do. And uh, I thought... Nothing better than seeing an old buddy of mine I haven't seen for years. Well, I bet you he would love to hear from you. And and thanks for checking out that interview. Sure. Well, I think a lot of people, you're one of those people, I think I could spot you if you were walking across the street a half a mile away. You have an iconic kind of look. I, I have to introduce you. You're one of our beloved American singers, performing and recording artists. I can tell you I've been listening to you uh, my whole life. If you go through all of my CD collections, one of the first that I bought when I started buying music was an Arlo Guthrie album. So this is kind of surreal. It's a a great pleasure to be welcoming this unique voice in American music, a great storyteller. Now retired, but Arlo Guthrie, it's an honor. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be with you, by the way. It's an honor for me. So what's been going on today? You're in the beautiful state of Florida. Well, we uh, about, uh, what was it, three years? Oh, three months. Oh, we've been, yes. <laughs> I've been trying to go back in time, but I had built, I had an old um, seafood building that had originally been built by the Coast Guard right on the Indian River on the east coast of Florida, midway up and down. And it took me about 35 years to convert that into a home. And But we finally got it done. And we sold it about a year and a half ago. And uh, But I'm still in that same area. Because at this age, my age, you don't want to be out shoveling snow, which is the alternative. So we've been down here since uh, December, probably head back up uh, at some point in March or maybe early April to Western Massachusetts, where I've lived for a very long time. So as I mentioned in that introduction, you are retired from the performing side of music. What, what has that been like for you? Well, you know, it was all I knew. I started performing uh, on stage at a very young age and had uh, initially 
some great success. And it was really a lot of fun. And it matured over the years to where it became a way of life. And I did that for a good 50 years. So suddenly stopping that way of life and having to do something else was not something I really wanted to do. It was something I needed to do. And so now I'm living with the repercussion of that reality. And it's not so bad at all. I've been having a great time. I can't quite play like I used to, and I can't sing like I used to. And I remember, you know, my old friend Pete Seeger, uh, when he was in his, oh, probably late 80s. uh, And I called him up to do a show like we'd been doing at Carnegie Hall for in New York for years, decades. And I said to him, Pete, would you join me on stage? And he said to me, Harlow, I can't sing like I used to sing and I can't play like I used to play. And I looked at him and I, I talked to him on the phone. I said, Pete, look at our audience. They, they can't hear like they did 30 or 40 years ago. So it shouldn't be a problem. And I have dealt with that ex- I mean, of course, he laughed. And so I'm laughing because I find myself in the same position where you, I realize I can't do what I used to do. And I have to learn to do other things. And mostly for me, it's been great. Uh, we, uh, I just got married a few months ago to a woman that I've known for just about 20 years. And we finally decided to do that. That was fun. And we've been putzing in the, well, she does the gardening. I I do the commenting. But when I picked up the snow shovel last year, she looked at me and said, are you an idiot? What are you doing? Put that down. Call the grandkids. Something like that, you know. (laughs) And uh, so I, and I realized, yeah, you can't be doing the stuff you used to do especially because I've had some physical issues and uh, stuff like that. And so now I'm taking it easy and I'm enjoying the fine weather as you are up in, uh, in, where you are, uh, in Georgia, right? Yep. I'm, I'm one state above you. Yep. So it's <laughs> not dissimilar. Right. It's probably a hair warmer down here. Uh, spring is coming a little sooner. It, it won't hit the place we live in Western Massachusetts for another month or two. But meanwhile, we get to enjoy the weather. I go, you know, uh, taking care of myself as best I can, reading books, which I never had time to do, and enjoying enjoying life as best I can. Wonderful. Well, I have to say, first of all, well, first of all congratulations uh, on on the wedding. You have one of the best wedding photos of you and Marty that I've ever seen. The one that's in the newspaper. Well, what can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had fun getting married. We've known each other for quite some time. Unlike most newlyweds, Hmm. uh, we're not young. We're not looking to start a family or, you know, or stuff like that. At this point in life, it's mostly a matter of taking care of each other and assuring that somebody's there. Somebody who uh, not only understands you, cares about you. Oh, there she goes. She there can't she help is. it. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we're having, we're having fun and it's nice being, it's nice being married again. You have a lovely bride. I do. So Arlo, I, I saw momentarily there uh, a guitar, but I'm just wondering, do you, do you, uh, do you stay in any way, just even for your own pleasure, artistically creative? Do you write or anything like that? Well, I try to. I was never one of those prolific writers. I was never that disciplined. So I don't get up every day and spend a certain amount of time at it. But I'm the kind of person who uh, enjoyed playing. I was a I was a pretty good guitar player in my time, and I still do, you know, I, I do a little plan to keep my fingers in shape. That was one of the things that uh, happened was, you know, about a year and a half ago, I had uh, my third stroke, and it put me into a place where I had lost some of the strength in my left hand, which happens to people, and I had planned on rehabilitating myself, as it were, to get some strength back by going out on the road because there's nothing like learning to play when people are looking at you. <laughs> you can do it in your own home, uh, but it's not quite the same. And so we booked some shows and we went out and did about 10 shows. All of a sudden, COVID hit. And all the venues shut down. And at first they were postponed and then they were canceled and then they were rescheduled or was, I don't know, whatever they were doing. And I finally realized, wait a minute, this is this isn't going anywhere for a while. Mm. And so my rehabilitation was put on hold. My idea of rehabilitating my getting my strength back, getting my performance chops back, getting my vocal chops back, were all just canceled as a result of the pandemic. So Marty and I went to my home in New England, stayed there for a year and a half trying to stay out of harm's way. And I realized that it was a never-ending it was it was not going to get better for me personally. The world might recover. People will get back to work. People will go out and enjoy themselves. But for me personally, those better days of being an entertainer were behind me. And it really wasn't so much the gigs themselves. I mean, standing in front of people doing a show is a lot of fun. And it's energizing and it's healing and it's all of those things. It's wonderful. But the sitting in the tour bus for six or seven, eight hours, sitting at a gig, mm -hmm. you get to at one o'clock in the afternoon because it takes them six hours to set up the stage. That was getting old. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I canceled or I retired from that part of it. So I haven't officially retired from performing so much as I've retired from getting there. <laughs> <laughs> that could go on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, the, it's, I mean, here I am talking to you. If I was yeah. really, 
retired, I wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, do you and Marty ever sing with each other around the house? No. No. She's best to sing in mostly to headphones because it's easier for her to be listening to familiar tunes, not some old guy whining in the background. So <laughs> she she puts on the headphones and walks out and does the gardening. And I sit there and yell, but she can't hear me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've listened to a great deal of the albums that you've made. And I'm asking you this because I would struggle to come up with a label or how would you describe the music that you've created? What category? Well, I've, I've tried to remain uncategorical, uh, uncategorical. I can't even say the word, but yeah. whatever the word is, I have tried to refrain from doing that. I'd simply call my, I have always uh, identified myself as being a folk singer. I write, I wrote, I should say, the kinds of songs and performed the kinds of songs that really weren't geared toward popular music. They weren't made to be played on the radio. I mean, even the very first thing I did, which was Alice's Restaurant, was 18 minutes long. And in those days, they didn't play anything over two and a half minutes. So I had no intention of becoming a pop star or working with popular music. My intention was to continue the thoughts and the feelings and the philosophies of those who went before me and continued uh, with friends like Pete Seeger, whose music I thought was humanitarian in nature. In other words, it made you feel good about yourself or they made you to think about something or they whined or they moaned or, but they loved too. And they, had songs for little kids, songs about life were more important to me than writing or performing the kinds of songs that would have made me a lot of money or set me up to be some kind of pop performer. I've resisted the categorization, the categories. Well, maybe that's why I was having trouble categorizing because that's what you were or, or being able to categorize because that's what you were going for. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't purposely try to remain outside of the categories. It's just that the categories have moved on. Hmm. The days of an interest in traditional folk music have long been gone. At one time, it was popularized by groups like the Kingston Trio or Peter Paul and Mary or other people like that. Uh, the Limelighters, or you know, I mean, there were there were people who had heard these old songs, were familiar with them, and rewrote them to be more sort of collegiate. Or I remember amusing myself because people singing chain gang songs wearing college sweaters seemed a little bit over the top for me. Hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, it just didn't seem right. And I remember growing up as a kid, I would listen to the records that my father had and they were all these old blues guys and jazz guys. And I realized as a young person, I couldn't sing that stuff. I mean, I could have, there were people doing it, but it sounded foolish to me. So I had to wait and it was a 
long-standing joke on stage. I mean, I had to wait for my voice to get old enough and grouchy enough to authentic, authentically sing the kinds of songs that I heard when I was a kid. Very interesting. Could you be a, would you be able to define folk music, what that is? Well, for me, anyway, I have usually defined it not as a genre. A lot of people think it's a, uh, there's a certain sound to it. But take a song like Yankee Doodle, and everybody would say, oh, yeah, that's an old folk song. But if an orchestra plays it, it's still a folk song. Hmm. If a symphony orchestra plays any uh, old Joe Clark or something like that, it's still old Joe Clark. It doesn't matter what it sounds like, and it doesn't matter what instruments you use. It's the tradition that there are two major traditions. One is that you play by ear. You listen to something and you say, I want to do that. And you, and you figure it out how to do that. And that's what I did when I was a kid. And I guarantee you that most country music, jazz uh, musicians, rock and rollers, rap artists, whoever they are these days, they learn the same way. They hear something and they want to emulate it. They want to learn from it. The other tradition is a classical tradition where you learn to read it. So you don't really create your own stuff, but you create what's already written. And the better of a classical player you are, the more able you are to do things that are written authentically. You don't goof up. In other words, you have to practice. Well, I can guarantee you that I practiced what I did over and over and over again, thousands of times before I even felt comfortable performing it. So it takes the same work, it takes the same dedication, but there are two distinctly different ways of doing it. And the former, the way that you learn by ear, is what I would define as folk music, and the other I would define as class- classical music. You have recorded, in addition to your own songs, a lot of songs from traditional stuff to things that Bob Dylan wrote to classics like uh, Can't Help Falling in Love. Can you name for us a song that you think, just maybe the first one that comes to mind, that is exceptional in its quality? Well, I was lucky enough to have access to not only my father's collection of records, but his records of his of himself and also to the lyrics that he wrote to songs that he never got around to put music to so if one song stood out it would be my father's song called my peace which is especially relevant these days and it's one he wrote long past his prime as a writer but i thought It was eloquent. It was simple. It was not overly done. And it just needed a tune. Hmm. And uh, so I created one or stole one from somewhere. And I'd been singing that song for years and years to 
to close the shows that we did. So that's my, I would say if I, you know, 50 years from now, when I'm no longer around, they said, what did Arlo Guthrie do? That song, I hope, would be in the list of things that I did. Hmm. Well, there was one I mentioned there, Can't Help Falling in Love. Right. One of my favorite interviews that I got to do was with one of the writers of that song, Luigi Creatore, down there in the Sunshine State. What a sweet guy. I'd never met him before. He came to the door and hugged me, like, right away. Well, with a name like that, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, what a what a musical name, <laughs> Luigi Creatore. But, I mean, Italians in general are going to hug you. And, you know, I found that the farther south you go toward the equator, the warmer people generally are. Huh. The farther north you go, the less enthusiastic and the less welcoming they are. It doesn't mean that they're any different inside, but they don't express themselves in the same way. So uh, the, the colder climates generally are cold, not just weather-wise, but expressively. Huh. And the, the farther south you go, and everywhere in between sort of fits into this uh, way that people express themselves. And, you know, if if you come from Italy or somewhere like that, people are going to hug you and they're going to kiss you and they're going to welcome you. And if you go up to the northern Sweden or Canada or somewhere like that, people are going to look at you and smile, but they're not necessarily going to go out of their way to make you feel that kind of warmth. Well, I can tell you there is something magnetic about the way that you do that song. You do that song very well. Thank you. Yes, well, sir. it's an oddball song because, first of all, it was popularized by Elvis, uh, Elvis Presley. And what I thought was that it's the, it's the story leading into it that I used to tell that gave the song an ex- expansive sort of feel. In other words, anywhere you went in the world, you could sing that song. And people would know it. I mean, they wouldn't know every song from anywhere. But there was a time, and especially when I was a kid, that American songs in particular were known all over the world. And that was, I mean, I never even thought about it. It was just the way it was. And then somewhere, I don't know, in maybe the 80s or 90s, that worldwide what some would consider domination of American music began to fade and people started creating their own music. To me, that was a good thing, but it was also a sad thing. Sad in the sense that we had shared this great combination of commercialism and ability uh, and made feel people feel good everywhere about who we were as Americans. And that began to fade as people began to want to feel good about themselves. And so it was a switching of priorities, a switching of reality, or something happened. And these days, you will still find us being, there's an American presence almost everywhere you go. 
in the kinds of music that people make themselves, but they will make it in their own language. They'll make it in their own way. They're, they're wearing their own outfits or whatever. And if it sounds a little bit like hip hop or something like that, or rap music, it's because we, we still have a presence on the world stage musically, but we don't have the dominance that we did. And one of the great ways that I discovered that was by doing that song, I Can't Help Falling in Love with You. When I was with my old buddy, Pete Seeger, we were on stage somewhere over in Europe. And uh, I started to sing that song and everybody knew the words. That was an amazing time. Uh, we felt a unity and we're beginning to feel it again to some extent, maybe because of uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now. Maybe because we realized that the kind of influence we used to exert culturally is more important than the kind of influence we used to exert militarily. Mm. And that gave me hope, not just about who we were, but who the world is, who the average guy is. There's something that there's something to be said for the kind of influence those songs had. And they didn't have to be political and they didn't have to be cultural. and They didn't have to be anything. They were just popular music. So even though I, that wasn't my forte, there was no reason for me to ignore that that was real. There are a lot of people who wrote to me and said, you're no Elvis. You know, <laughs> I, said, I wasn't trying to be. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say thank you in my own way not just to the guys that wrote it, but for the people who learned it wherever they were, uh, because it meant something to them. Hmm. What a great observation. On that note, having traveled around as much as you have playing music for the people, what would you say that that experience has taught you about human beings? Well, luckily enough for me, the kind of places that I've played are, have been very, I've played a wide variety of places. Everything from little tiny coffee shops with 50 or 60 people to stadiums with 50 or 60,000 people. And although all of it was fun and all of it was great, there's nothing quite like learning your chops when you learn in front of a hundred people who are drinking <laughs> the bars and you know, there's, there's guys out there right now who are playing these little clubs and little bars in every little hometown, everywhere in the world. It doesn't matter what continent they're on, but they're out there. It's not the money. Trust me. It's because they love doing it. It's because it's fun. But they are the most difficult audience to try and sing for because they don't really want to pay attention to you. They didn't go to the bar to hear you. I mean, maybe later in life they did. But when you're starting out, nobody knows your name. And you're standing in front of 100 people who are all drinking, trying to make their move on a girlfriend or trying to meet up with that guy or whatever's going on. You are not necessarily the focus of anybody's attention. 
And so for you to learn the chops of having that, make that switch, make that so that people are listening to you, want to hear what you have to say, how you got to play, what you're singing, how to do that. Well, there's nothing quite like learning how to do that. And not only that, it's good to do it every once in a while. So even after playing the big stadiums and the theaters and uh, all the venues that I've been playing, uh, I decided about 10 years ago once I was, I was going to go and play those kinds of places just for, just for fun. It wasn't for the money. I didn't need the money. And so I called up a friend in Denmark and I said, put me on a tour of Scandinavia. He said, oh, really? I said, yeah, I want to go in January <laughs> when nobody, nobody even in their right mind goes outside. <laughs> he said, any other restrictions? I said, yeah, nothing over 400 people, hmm. which meant little bars and little places. And so uh, Marty and I went in January and we played those kind of places. And I never had so much fun. It was just me, no band, no nothing. I didn't even speak the language. I don't speak Swedish or Norwegian or Danish or anything like that. I can barely speak English. <laughs> so we got there. <laughs> Nevertheless, I tuned up those chops, you might say. And I had a great time doing it because I knew that if I could sit there and people were coming, not to hear me, they Going, they were going to the same place every night, no matter who was there, no matter if there was somebody there or not. Uh, I knew if I could command that audience, if I could get that attention and have them develop an interest, not just in me, but in the kind of music I was playing, that I would be well tuned up to play any other kind of place in the world. And we have take, I have made it a, uh, well, I don't know what you would sell, call it, but a hallmark. So that I've always tried on the biggest stages there are to make people feel like they're in the smallest bar. They're comfortable. It's like being in their living room. You're talking to them. You're not talking. You're not performing for a, a sort of vast, unknown something or other lost in your own world. You're talking to that guy, that gal. And uh, if you can get their attention, you're doing pretty good. Then you're a professional. The rest is just amateurs. Hmm. That's so cool. You know, somebody who would concur with you very much on this, and I, I see you have a Hawaiian shirt on, and everyone watching this can see that. The first radio station to broadcast my show was Jimmy Buffett's Radio Margaritaville way back when. Wow. And Every single year, of course, on Thanksgiving, the the wonderful program director, director Steve Huntington, always plays Alice's Restaurant and makes a big deal about it. I'm wondering if you have met Mr. Buffett. I don't think so. Or if I did, it was probably at something like Farm Aid for, you know, 30 seconds backstage and say, hey, how you doing? Or something like that. But we've never sat down and, and talked or chatted or anything like that, no. I would guess you would be kindred spirits, perhaps. But on that note... Well, you never know. There's a certain culture in Hawaii that I still love. Yeah. Uh, and I think 
there's a certain lifestyle that is a little more relaxed, not so formal, easygoing, people I relate to. Uh, I don't do well with people wearing suits and ties. I don't, I don't have anything against them. It's just that I not, I'm not that comfortable. I don't feel like sitting down having a beer with somebody dressed like that or coming from a culture like that. There are places in the world where that kind of lifestyle, that suit and tie, crisp, something or other, is admired, required. And I don't have a problem with that. It's just as it's not me. And I have been either stubborn enough or self-indulgent enough so that I never feel felt as though I had to accommodate that kind of life. It's, it's fine for whoever it's for under particular circumstances, like a funeral or something like that, wedding, you know, you might want to get dressed up a little bit. Uh, but my everyday walking around self is not, does not relate very well or very close to that kind of some. So anybody who feels like I do, like Jimmy Buffett, uh, and I would be kindred spirits in that sense. Hmm. Well, on that note, what do you look for in another human being? What, what do you admire about someone? Well, I think generally what I admire is somebody who is able to see beyond their own self. I like people who take themselves uh, seriously as the first work. The first work you do is on yourself. I was thinking about this the other day when it occurred to me that we all have a vocabulary. There's a certain amount of words that we know. And we use those words for good or for ill. And we have learned those words since we were kids. There's a certain way we define other people and there's a certain way that we've defined us and people who generally speak ill of others. I sense are using the same vocabulary that they have used on themselves. When somebody says um, somebody else is stupid, it's because they've said to themselves they're stupid. Otherwise, stupid wouldn't mean anything to them. Hmm. You have to know what those words mean. So when somebody calls somebody else something, it's because they've called themselves, they recognize those same words in themselves. So I admire the kind of people who speak well of others because it means they have spoken well of themselves. I admire people who are able to see beyond their own self into somebody else, how they're feeling, to see, see what the other shoe feels like. You don't have to walk in it. You just want to be at least aware that your shoes are not the only ones there are. There are other people with other shoes. And uh, once you know that, you can make friends with just about anybody uh, who is willing, who has that same understanding. And luckily for me, 
one of the other things about vocabulary is music. Music is a vocabulary in and of itself. It is a language in and of itself. And it has different grammatical structure wherever you go. But if as long as you are willing to listen, you can figure out somebody else's grammar pretty quickly. And as a musician, I have found that I and I've been all, I've been around the world a couple of few times. There's nobody I couldn't play music with, even though I couldn't speak their language and they couldn't speak mine. We didn't have anything to say to each other that made sense intellectually or about religion or politics or whatever was going on. But musically, we could talk to each other and it would be understood. So one of the first things I did was to teach my kids the language of music. They don't have to speak it very well, but they understand it. They've heard it. It's just like when you grow up with your parents or grandparents who speak a different language, you don't know everything they're saying. Half the time, they're saying it just so you don't know what they're saying. <laughs> but, the light, but the structure of it, the sound of it is familiar. So if you had to go learn it at some point, it wouldn't be that difficult. It would be less difficult than if you'd never heard it before. If you, if the, if you couldn't form the vocabulary with your, with your own physical structure, the way your tongue moves in your mouth, the way your muscles move and everything. If you couldn't, if you hadn't heard it, it would be very difficult. So one of the things I always, always valued in other people is the ability to listen and the ability to keep an open mind. Don't be so judgmental. Don't have expectations. Just see what's going on. Mm. Because that way, their thoughts and their feelings can move through you, even though you don't understand the language and you don't understand the grammar and you don't understand all that. But there's a whole lot you don't understand. But you can still feel it. And I've always treasured that and valued it. That's something. You mentioned him a couple of times now, the great Pete Seeger. And there are, are a lot of really iconic people that you have shared the stage with, Bob Dylan. Is there someone who has especially thrilled you? The first person I ever met outside of my father who continues to this day to be a big influence is Led Belly. I met him when I was two. By the time I was three, he was already gone. So I know I had to be about two years old. And I remember about 25 years ago, playing somewhere in Oklahoma, uh, doing a show. And I thought I saw Led Billy walk in the room. But that couldn't be because he'd been gone for 30 years. But I looked at this guy and it, it was Led Belly. That's what came to mind when I saw him. It was something in his eyes. And it, it stopped me cold. I couldn't figure it out because it couldn't be Led Belly, but it was Led Belly. Well, it turned out it was one of Led Belly's nephews or something who had the same eyes. Well, I had never, I'd never. I'd been too young to remember that time. I don't remember looking in Lead Belly's eyes. 
but something in me recognized that look, something I couldn't even remember, something I didn't know I knew. And we talked and we had fun. It reminded me of a time when I was very young and I had gone to see Ogotunji, a great drummer from Africa. And uh, went home, I bought the record or something like that, wore it out. It was called Drums of Passion. So, I don't know, about 20 years ago, this was when I was a kid, and he was an old man then. About 20 years ago, I was in Africa, and I was doing a show or something. I was doing something. And I'm sitting in this big auditorium uh, waiting for the show to begin. And as a uh, before the, I think Nelson Mandela was going to be there or something. So there was a big buildup of enthusiasm. People were, you know, impressed. And I'm just sitting there chatting with somebody next to me. And somebody started playing the drums. And I, I thought, you know, I said, I was kidding. I thought, sounds just like Olatunji. And the person looked at me and said, that is Olatunji. And I looked at the sage. I said, that can't be. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. How could I know who that was? How could I know just from the, uh, the drum? I mean, there's no melody. There's no chord changes. It's not a song. It's not something we would identify as recognizable. It's not like listening to Mozart or Beethoven or something you could, or even Bob Dylan. I mean, it's not something, it's a drum. Mm. How many things can you do with a drum? But there was something about that sound, something about that something that I recognized, just like I had recognized Lead Belly's eyes. There's something inside of us that is knows more than we do, knows more than we can think. It's a feeling. It's a it's a knowledge. And it occurred to me. I forget who you were asking, but I saw one of your shows when you were asking somebody, what is it? Uh, what's your, uh, what is it about music that, I don't know, is identifiable or something like that? And it, it occurred to me, it wasn't, it's not the songs. It's not how talented a writer they are or even how good a player they are. It's who they are. Hmm. It's who is that person? And something about the who of people is recognizable. Something about their soul or their spirit or something, I don't know what it is, uh, lives in us as something recognizable, something familiar. And that's more important than what they sound like or what they play like or what they perform like or all the other stuff. I mean, the other stuff is fine. Don't get me wrong. It's good to be a good. It's good to be a good player. It's great to be a good singer. All of those things are fabulous. But it doesn't take away from. It's not a substitute for who that person is, and what that person brings you in terms of the feeling. So, if you're paying attention to us right now, there's some people are going to say, "Yeah, that's familiar." And some people are going to say, yeah, that hippie, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And there's going to be, so to some people, I will be familiar. 
just like those who have influenced me. And the very first one, like you asked me to begin with, was, was Lead Belly. He continues to have an influence uh, on me, not just because of who he was, but because of how he did it, how he, how he expressed himself in his playing. And I have learned to do that. I can play his songs, his way, anytime I feel like it, you know, despite the strokes I've had and the trouble I've had and stuff like that, I can pick up a guitar right now and show you what he was doing. And you will get that feeling of that guy learned it from Lead Belly. Well, interesting. You know, somebody who is watching this for sure, and I want to say hello to him, the the autobiographer of the Steve Goodman book, the Steve Goodman book to beat all Steve Goodman books. I'm talking about Clay Eels. Who yes. He told me that of all the, I mean, he probably interviewed a thousand people for that book. He said that you were his favorite person to interview. Clay said that, you know, I'm hoping you can say a word because you've talked about songwriters Say a word about Steve Goodman and meeting him. What kind of guy he was? I had no expectations and I had never heard Steve Goodman until somewhere around 1970 or so. And I was playing in a little club in Chicago. It was called The Quiet Night. It was on the second floor of a building downtown somewhere. Not, not immediately downtown, but in like one of the offshoots of downtown under a elevated train. And uh, I was, I played there a lot. The guy's name was Richard Harding who owned it. And he had owned another place called poor Richards in Chicago, which was, I think about the second or third place I ever played in my life. So I had known this guy a long time, but it was a small club folk club. And Richard and I became friends, the, the guy that owned it. And so I frequented there quite often in those days. And on one particular night after the third show of the day, uh, so it had to be a weekend, uh, everybody had left except for one little guy. He was a small guy. And he walked up to me and he had a look in his eye. And he said, Arlo, I want to sing you a song. And I was tired. I didn't want to hear any freaking songs. I'd already done three shows that day. But there was something about him. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you buy me a beer, I'll sit here and drink it. And as long as it lasts, you do whatever you want. And Goodman looked at me and said, that's a deal. <laughs> so I could have got the beer for free. I was playing the joint, you know. But okay. So I'm sitting there drinking a the beer, and he starts playing. I didn't think too much about it. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. At least the guy knows what he's doing. And I took them. He gave me a lead sheet and a cassette deck, and a cassette tape in those days, some other whatever. And I took it home, sat on the piano for a long time, about three months. And one day when I got bored, I was just looking at it. And I thought, you know what? That's a good song, City of New Orleans. And I started playing it, but I played it uh, a little slower than Steve. And I changed a couple of chords because I don't know, I'd make it a little more me as it were. 
this it sounded like a sad song to me, or at least uh, melancholy. And Steve, the way he played it was happy. But Steve was a happy guy. He played everything happy. Hmm. So what I, I, I rearranged it and, and we took it in the studio and we tried it a few different ways. And uh, I tried a rock and roll version. I did a bluegrass version. I did this version, that version. None of them sounded quite right. But finally, we, we picked the simplest one. And that was the one we had to hit with. So I called him up. I said, Goodman, we got to get together. We got to do a tour and stuff like that. And we became friends. And he was one of those guys that had a gleam in his eye. Almost the only ball game I went to in my life was when Goodman took me to Wrigley Field in Chicago to see the Cubs play or to see the Cubs lose. They were losing everything in those days. <laughs> they couldn't win if they want. I mean, for nothing. And uh, he didn't care. He just wanted to be there. And I grew to love that guy. He was, he was, he had the best heart, always bubbly, always excited, always up for something. He was, he uh, inspired you to, to do things, just to live. Of course, later I found out he had a reason for that. And that was because he was dying. And his reason for living was because he was facing, he had uh, leukemia or something like that. And he, he knew it wasn't going to be good. And he was going to live every breath of his life to the fullest that he could in the time that he had. And he did just that. I remember years later, he called me. And he said, congrats. He called me on the phone, which he'd never done. He said, Arlo, congratulations. We got a hit. I said, what do you mean we got a hit? That was 10, 15 years ago. He said, no, Johnny Cash uh, recorded the song. Willie Nelson. Oh, Willie Nelson. That's right. He said, Willie Nelson recorded Sid in New Orleans. I said, what are you calling me for? It's your song. He said, well, yeah, he didn't do it my way. He did it your way. And I thought, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and so we talked and we had determined uh, we were going to do a tour together. He was a good friend of John Prine's. And I had also toured with John Prine a lot. And so I had heard Goodman's stories from John Prine. We had planned a tour, and he said, well, I got to go into the hospital. I don't know if I'm getting out of here, but if I get out, we'll go on tour. And he, he didn't get out. Hmm. But uh, he remain, he will remain in my heart. Uh, that gleam in his eye, smile on his face, the bounce in his step, all of those things remain well kept. Hmm. And such a, a line, good morning, America, how are you? It's just like every time <laughs> it knocks me out. Well, and that was him. That was Goodman. You know, my father used to say, you can only write what you see. You can only write what you know. If you try too hard to get out of your own life into somebody else's, then you become a fiction writer, which is fine, except it doesn't ring true all the time on stage. Goodman wrote the kinds of songs that 
were real to him. And so you knew when you were listening to him that you were listening to real life. Wasn't wasn't made up. He had a twist on it that might have put a smile on your face or a gleam in your eye or something like that. But because he would always see that part of reality, he chose to see that. The doom and gloom part that so many other writers use for their songs uh, were not part of his vocabulary. They were part of other people's experience. But Goodman saw life for what it was for him, which was humorous, absurd, funny, happy, and engaging. And uh, thank God for writers like him. I've been doing this thing at the end of the interview. It's like, I guess you could say, short question, short answer. And people have been really enjoying it. So I hate it already. <laughs> what did you say? I hate it already. Well, answer. I'm, it only, I'm only kidding you. Okay, go ahead. But I, I never, I never interrupt my guests. There's no, there are no real rules, so to speak. What are you most proud of? I don't know yet. <laughs> That's a great answer. Are there any misconceptions you think people have about you? I'm sure there are. <laughs> that could be said probably about everybody, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you could tell the young Arlo something, like the, the before the first album, if you could sit him down and say, Arlo, this is what you need to know. Would you say anything to him or what would you say? Uh, I have done just that. And uh, the young me doesn't listen. Do you consider yourself introverted or extroverted? Both. Both. A lot of entertainers seem to be like that. Yeah. You told, uh, well, I mean, part of the, of, of the give and take here is to not give a, a long answer. But the truth is, you cannot walk on stage after you just had an argument with your spouse or a fight with your kids or your dog died, or your pickup truck got hit, or something, you can't bring that with you. You have to leave it all behind, and so you have to face the audience as a performer. In normal life, that's called multiple personality disorder. <laughs> but for an entertainer, it is a must. You have to do that. And so I have learned to be both an introvert and ex ex extrovert, as well as having to deal with multiple personality disorders. <laughs> Speaking of that. Screwed up a long time. What's that? Say it again. I've been screwed up a long time. <laughs> Speaking of that first album, that was on reprise, right? Yes. Did you ever meet Frank Sinatra? I don't think so. No. Just my, mother, my mother was a huge fan I'm sure I would have remembered or she would have reminded me of, of a meeting with him had it ever occurred. And she did not. Well, I always like to end the show. I give the guest the stage. And yesterday I was looking at this, uh, this tracking thing where people are downloading 
And I was so surprised. I, I saw all these countries that people are downloading the show from, and I, I had no idea. So truly, around the world, what would you say to anybody who's tuned in with us? Totally open-ended. I'd say help Ukraine if you can. That's what has to happen now from all the countries around the world. People have to support all of those guys. They have to support the Russian soldiers who are not very engaged. They don't want to be there. Russian people don't want to be there. Ukraine people don't want them there. It's a, you can't say cluster or something on this, can you? Or if you could, I would. But <laughs> it ain't good what's going on. And people need to step up now and say something and support everybody who is looking for the world to be a little easier going on itself than it appears to be right now. I put all of these titles, labels on you at the beginning, recording artist, performing artist, singer, folk singer. How would you define Arlo Guthrie at heart? Slump. What did you say? It's not a word. It's a feeling. I'm a, I am I am not I am all of those things and and none of them. So I mean who's Arlo Guthrie? We'll see. Well, I can tell you I have enjoyed talking to Arlo Guthrie and it's been a great pleasure. You've brought a lot of joy to the world and that's an important thing. It's a good song too, Joy to the World. <laughs> Yes. I was written by my, my cousin Hoyt. Hoyt Axton, yeah. Yeah, we were distant cousins, and Hoyt was a good friend of mine as well. I, I miss that guy. Great, great, great artist, for sure. Well, Arlo Guthrie, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. I don't get to do these very often, but talking to you was, was really fun. Thank you. All right, buddy. Yes, sir. All right. Well, that's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.